just things for me. Hello podcast legends, my name is Ben Greenwood, I'm the off-road performance coach. This podcast is to share with you how we do things at Race Ready Off-Road Coaching. So if you want to be a beast on and off the dirt bike, you've certainly come to the right place. Today we are going to jump into February listener Q&A episode, second month of the year already in 2024. It's flying by, so we've got some awesome questions sent in by some listeners and some followers off the Instagram page. So thank you to everyone that has sent in some questions. Got a pretty broad range of topics today. Um, Some training stuff, a little bit of bike specific stuff and a little bit of sort of nutrition and um, some stuff around the racing scene in Australia. So first question very basic shout out to my mate sam who sent this one in why do i like hardtail mountain bikes so much (laughs) so very simple anyone who's ridden the mountain bike tracks in yak and danda will know where i live pretty basic uh they were built by a bunch of mostly 50 year old dudes there's very little features we don't really have jumps we don't have rock gardens It's just old school hand cut single track. So it's basically perfect for a hardtail. So recently we've actually got the the Epic Trail, the Indigo Epic Trail has been built in from Yakandana to Beechworth, which is pretty cool. It's machine built flow trail. So again, flow trail, it's for the most part, it's smooth. There is a few little jumps. They're not anything crazy. But again, like the hardtail goes pretty good on machine built flow trail like it's dead smooth um you don't really need suspension per se on that stuff so like i don't get me wrong i love mountain biking but really it's just a tool for me to a way i can get outside and improve my fitness so i'm not really into like traveling around going to crazy mountain bike tracks with drops rock gardens all that stuff i used to be into that not so much now so i don't feel like i need suspension on my bike that being said i did go for a ride on an e-bike would you believe last week we did the epic trail me and a mate who's got two e-bikes he bought them both and so we both had an e-bike obviously that was actually pretty cool i've never ridden an e-bike properly apart from just around a car park so it was actually pretty fun it was obviously a full suspension like 160 mil travel uh e-bike and that was actually really fun on the epic trail to be honest with you um wouldn't be my pick if i was just purely using it as a tool to get fit i think it's probably too easy um probably good if you're coming off the couch and you want something that like is going to be easier for you to get out um so i can definitely see where they have their place for sure um but it was just fun like the epic trail in yak all the even some of the climbs are like machine built so they've got berms and banked turns when you're climbing 
So obviously when you're on your hardtail and you like, there's a couple of longish climbs on the Epic Trail where you're kind of locked in there for sort of 10 minutes or so. So you're gassing pretty hard by the time you get to the top of one of them on a hardtail or a, a pedal bike. But the e-bikes like you actually could r- almost race each other up on the uphills because you've got the engine there, obviously. So I was like, we were having to actually use the brakes because the corners are banked and they're bermed turns. You could get so much speed up going uphill with the motor there that we were having to like use our brakes and slow down for the corners going uphill. So it actually made like descending. Don't think there was that much difference in all honesty. Um, It was kind of cool to have a little bit of suspension, but the thing's that heavy, like it's actually pretty hard to jump, like harder to jump because it weighs like almost three times as much as my hardtail. So (laughs) you don't have to do much to jump the hardtail because it's very light. The e-bike weighs a ton, so it's pretty like you had to really put in some effort to actually jump the thing. Um, That would be about the only difference I noticed going downhill. But the biggest difference was going uphill was actually fun. So I can see where they have their place, an e-bike for sure. Um, Like honestly, if I was going to drop money on a dual suspension bike after having ridden that e-bike i'd probably get an e-bike in all honesty the other thing i thought when i was riding that e-bike is if i had an e-bike my son is old enough he's 10 now uh, sorry 11 but he's pretty tall for his age he's got long legs he can ride my hardtail no worries like he can fit on a full-size mountain bike now with the seat right down so if i had an e-bike he could ride that i could ride my hardtail we could do the epic trail together which would be pretty sick um, going to do like a full lap of the Epic together. He obviously like, it'd be too much for him on his little pet on his pedal mountain bike, his 24 inch. He's probably not quite ready for that. Um, but if we had the e-bike, I reckon he'd, he'd, he'd get around the Epic trail. No worries with the, the motor in boost. And then we'd be somewhat similar pace. Um, so just open up more opportunities that we could do together, um, to enjoy mountain biking. So, I'm keeping the hardtail. There could be an e-bike on the horizon, but it's definitely not at the top of the list. It's a fair way down the list. Next question was, tell me about my suspension setup in my YZ. Just go back to the last episode. I spoke about suspension and I talked about my suspension setup and what I like. The Yamahas, like, Pretty common knowledge, they come with KYB. Don't have to do much. You just revalve it. Maybe, depending on your body weight, change some spring weight, spring rates. I I think we went one rate firmer in the fork for me. Um, from memory, we did change the front fork spring rate. Um, I think it was firmer. And just revalved it. That's it. Ride the bike. So, but if you want more details on that, go back to that last episode. So I shared a bit more stuff around that. Deadlift, normal deadlift with a straight bar versus trap bar deadlift. So one isn't really better than the other. Uh, Your trap bar deadlift is probably going to be better suited potentially if you're a taller person. Now that doesn't mean you can't deadlift with a straight bar if you're really tall. I've had some really tall clients like six and a half foot 
clients who have absolutely no problem deadlifting with a straight bar because they've got good mobility. So it's one of those things that's a little bit like horses for courses. Some people just don't like deadlifting with a straight bar. They feel like it overloads their back more. Like I would say if I was coaching someone that I would be able, in person, I would be able to get them to a point where they could deadlift comfortably no matter what with a straight bar. But at the end of the day, like it really comes down to what you feel most confident with if you have the option to do both. Um, it also depends how you set it up. So you can set up a trap bar deadlift with your hips a little bit higher, your shins a little bit more vertical and it's going to be uh, more of a like a posterior chain dominant hinge pattern or you could squat into it more which lots of people do so they keep their chest a bit more upright they bend their knees a lot more and when you do it that way it's not that any again not really anything wrong with doing it that way but it just means you're going to be like loading your quads a lot more and using your quads a lot more. You're always you're using your quads to, pr to push the weight off the floor in a deadlift anyway, but when you're in more of a squatted position with your chest up a little bit taller, it's going to be a little bit more of a knee-dominant movement pattern compared to a stricter hinge where your hips are a little bit more, a little bit higher, and you're loading your hamstrings and your glutes a bit more to hinge and extend the hip. So... Again, it's just being aware of that. What does your hinge pattern actually look like when you're using a trap bar? Does it look like a hinge or does it look more like a squat? So for all of my clients, whether they are deadlifting with a straight bar or deadlifting with a trap bar, we also want to be doing an RDL. An RDL is the king of the deadlift movements. It's a strict hip hinge, so we're not putting the weight back down on the floor, so it demands us to hinge strictly. We're keeping the shins vertical, pushing the hips back. So we're placing all of that load into the glutes, the hamstrings. So whichever bar you choose to deadlift with, you want to be including some RDLs somewhere else in your program across the week. That's how I come at it. And it's, I, it's even more important that I get my clients performing RDLs if they are using a trap bar deadlift for their, for their deadlift uh, pattern. So, yeah, like I say, it's not the ones better or worse. Like, in a perfect world, we would see that you could do both. You'd be competent in both of them. If, if you had the trap bar there and you could use it, you could, no worries, I'm going to use the trap bar today and that's fine. If I didn't have access to a trap bar and I've only got a straight bar, then I'm more than confident to deadlift with a straight bar today. Uh, the other way you can, like an in-between version of that is a deadlift off blocks. So you could just get two, even just two 20 kilo plates, lay them on the floor. So they're about say 50 mil, two inches off the floor, roughly. It's gonna raise the bar up a tiny bit higher. So if you are a taller person uh, or you don't feel super comfortable getting into that starting position with the, the bar on the floor, then that's most likely going to feel a lot more comfortable, a lot easier for you to get into position, just raising that bar up 50 mil. So that's a little bit of an in-between or a workaround that's, that I get some of my clients to do. Um, but like I say, ideally speaking, we would see that you could be competent in both of them and feel confident 
in both. So next one, sore abs after a ride. How do I fix it? Honestly, that is the first time I have ever heard someone say that their abs are sore after a ride. <laughs> I've heard everything. I've spoken to hundreds of dudes over the last few years, five years, whatever it is. And they will tell me like where they feel sore after a ride. Two most common areas, arms, hands, put them in the same basket, lower back. They're the two most common areas that people fatigue or feel soreness. I've honestly never heard anyone say that their abs are sore after they ride. So that doesn't mean it doesn't happen. Obviously, it's happening to this gentleman. So just thought I'd uh, share that little piece of information as well. However, my just straight up thought process with anything like that, if you're sore in a particular area after a ride, or after doing anything really, but obviously in this case, it's after a ride. So all of that really means is whatever you did the day before on that ride has placed so much load on that particular area, the abs in this instance, that you have exceeded their capacity and they're fatigued and you're, you're sore the next day. So it's a pretty good indication if you are feeling a particular muscle group is overly sore or overly fatigued after you ride consistently like not just a one-off but like consistently like week after week when you're riding then that's probably an indication that that particular area needs some extra work needs to you need to strengthen it up and improve its capacity to tolerate load so in this case if it's the abs just pretty simple i'd just be working on strengthening the abs more. So the I guess the the flip side or the other side to that coin first would be looking at your riding technique. You can sort of tell a lot by watching someone's position. Like what does your attack position look like? Is it a really good attack position? Is your chin over the handlebars when you're accelerating? Uh, or are you like collapsing and you're behind the handlebars and having to pull yourself forward so you are in that hunch where you are sort of crunching down on your abs more? Potentially, it could be that, could be like a riding technique issue. But once you sort of address that, I'd just be looking at making them stronger. If you go on my Instagram page, like especially recently, like the last two months or so, I've like posted quite a few posts on core training. So obviously, when you're lifting heavy weight, like we were just talking about a deadlift, uh, when you've got a barbell on your back, a, a front squat, Front squat's probably more, you're definitely using your abs more, more anterior load in a front squat. Another reason why I love front squats. Uh, but any sort of heavy compound lift where you're using a barbell, whether that's in a hinge position and you're holding onto it in front of you, or it's a squat and you're either racking the bar in front of you or on the back of your shoulders, you're going to be using your abs quite a bit, but that's more of an isometric contraction where you're having to sort of brace and create that tension around the core and the spine. So when you think about training your core, you want to be thinking about like any other joint in the body, you want to be training it to move. So planks, honestly, I've never really programmed planks for any of my clients. Um, we do some sort of side plank stuff with some 
hip abduction uh, incorporated into it, which is more of sort of about a, a hip stability exercise more so than the core itself. But we definitely don't just do plank holds or anything like that in like a normal plank position. Like we train the core to move. So for the abs specifically, things like hanging leg raises, plate sit-ups, GHD sit-ups, Again, just go look at my Instagram page. There's a ton of videos there, a ton of posts to show you how to do those exercises. Um, that's where I would be starting in that case. Um, and then just, yeah, keeping a tab on it. Ideally, if you strengthen that area up uh, in your off-bike training, ideally you would see that that sort of improves and you do that, that soreness tends to go away in like a linear sort of fashion when you start when you're getting out on the bike again. So next one was, and I'm an avid trail rider, just had my low back fused. Have you got any advice? So honestly, that's probably a little bit out of my scope to just be handing out uh, rehab advice, especially something like pretty serious, like having your low back fused. But you just want to be working with someone that has experience in that area and like any rehab situation, like it's really whatever it is, whether you have knee surgery, shoulder surgery, in this case, back surgery, really whatever, what the crux of it is, you're just regressing everything back to an acceptable level, which is probably going to start at body weight. And then you're just building back up. So you're slowly moving back through those progressions as you can tolerate it. Obviously, in that case, you're going to be pretty limited with your mobility. If your spine's been fused, you're not going to be able to bend those vertebrae. So you're going to be limited with your mobility and may have to work around it. Um, so yeah, that's about as much as I could probably tell you uh, in that instance. Next one was a question about old mate Jeremy Keach, would you believe? What are my thoughts on Jeremy Keach's method of avoiding bicep curls, avoiding bicep curls and forearm workouts for moto? So, very interesting question. I did see that post that he put up with the interview uh, where he asked AP about, I think he just asked him about some training or maybe it was exercises for arm pump, what like do's and don'ts. And AP said, Definitely don't do bicep curls. And in the very next sentence, he said, but I love doing chin-ups. So like one of the prime movers in a chin-up is your bicep. Any, any exercise where your arm is, when you're pulling, like it's a vertical pull in a chin-up, even a dumbbell row, even a ring row, a bodyweight exercise, any movement where you're pulling the elbow into flexion, you're using your biceps. So I don't program bicep curls. We don't really, only like in a, we have a like a, a mobility version of a bicep curl, but that's more about stretching, like uh, opening up the end range and getting into the pecs and a stretch through the bicep tendon. So I get some of my clients doing those. But generally speaking, unless they've had an injury, um, I don't get my clients doing bicep curls. That isn't because I believe bicep curls cause arm pump or anything like that. It's just because we're training, we're, we train heaps of compound upper body movements, push and pull. So the bicep is getting plenty of attention in those exercises. 
chins, dumbbell rows, all of that stuff. So I think it's a pretty big stretch to say that bicep curls would cause arm pump. If that's all you did, if all you did was do bicep curls, then maybe, yeah, that's prob. But and like anyone with half a brain would understand that's probably not a good way to train is just do bicep curls if you're training to prepare for riding a dirt bike. So the forearm thing, like, again, like define forearm exercises. Do you want to be getting a, one of those gripper things and just like squeezing the shit out of it all the time? No, probably not. Again, if you've had an injury and you've got a really weak hand or a really weak grip, that might be an exercise that you might do for a period of time. But generally speaking, like any exercise you do in that includes free weights, whether it's a dumbbell, a barbell, you pick up a weight to get stronger, you're training your forearms. Like you that's you've got to hold on to that weight somehow. So if you don't squeeze your grip on the dumbbell or the barbell, it will fall out of your hand. So again, like we're training our forearms in basically any compound movement where we're having to hold on to a weight or any movement at all where we're having to hold on to a weight. So again, it's not something that you would isolate and focus a lot of attention on the forearm and the grip per se on its own in isolation but we are training them in basically every exercise that we do where we have to hold on to a weight. So again, I think it's a pretty big stretch to say that training the forearms leads to arm pump. That's at least that's not in my experience with my clients, like I've mentioned plenty of times in previous episodes, all of my clients have uh, include upper body strength training, across their training week, lots of heavy lower body compound movements, holding on to heavy barbells and heavy dumbbells, and their arm pump is not getting worse and worse. In fact, it goes the opposite. Their arm pump, if anything, improves. They notice an, an increase into their endurance and the grip strength on the dirt bike. So, yeah, I wouldn't agree that training the biceps and forearms causes arm pump but obviously i wouldn't just say just do bicep curls and get one of those grip things and that's your upper body training that's all you're going to do for your upper body um so yeah that's my thought on that one next one good really good question this one how do i teach my son line selection and changing lines as the track goes away so a few things here number one doesn't, it doesn't say how old his, your son is, so I'm not exactly sure how old. I'm assuming he's on the younger side, but this might not be possible at all the races you go to. Um, but if you can, you want to be going to watch the pros race. So if the juniors race at a different time, or even if it's like sprints and you can go and watch the seniors in between sprints, whatever that looks like, you want to be going to watch the pros race because the best way to learn it is to see it. So you want to be watching what are they doing. So go to a section where it is rough, where there's options and make him make your son watch what where does the clubman guy go? Where is he 
which line is he riding? Where does the dude that's winning the race go? Which line does he pick? Pretty pretty quickly, you'll start to see there's a very big difference where the clubman dude goes straight through the middle in the main line and the pro guys will be moving around all that stuff. Especially in cross-country racing. In sprint racing, I would say there's probably less of that. In sprints, because the sprint is short, you don't necessarily have to ride around everything. If you've got a good suspension setting, you can, like... The, the pro guys are just good at just smashing the main line. They are taking some other lines for sure, but definitely in cross-country racing where it comes more about efficiency over the duration of a three-hour race, riding around that stuff. And for juniors, like obviously if you're on a 65, your wheel's like 10 inches or, or 12 inches or whatever it is. And so like riding into a hole that like probably wouldn't be that bad for a, a full-size bike is pretty full on when your wheels like a third of the size so it can definitely be helpful for juniors to be able to pick their way around that stuff so that would be number one is going and watch the pros number two would be walking the track after the race if you can go like when the track is broken down it's destroyed go and walk the track and look at the lines show him where the options are asking what would you do in this situation um They'd be the two biggest ones. And then a drill you can do, like if you're training with him at home, you can just have, say, half a dozen witches hats. Say you've got like a little turn track, just a short turn track loop. You could have half a dozen witches hats and just tell him to do laps, do motos. And you're going to put those witches hats on the track randomly and you're going to move them every lap. So when he comes out of a corner and he's in the main line, you could have two or three witches hats on that main line. So the goal of this session is he's not allowed to hit one of the witches hats. He's got to go around them. Same on the uh, entry to the corners. You could, the, if he's taking a main line on the entry, you could put two or three witches hats along that line. So you make him move around them, and he's not allowed to hit them. And then you just randomly move them all of the all of the time while he's doing, say, a ten or a fifteen minute moto. So he's having to think. He's having to like, oh, that's the tracks changes. So a witch's hat might be a hole or a tree root. I don't want to hit that. I'm going to go around it. So it challenges him to start thinking about taking other lines as as the track changes. So that would be something you could play around with um, as a bit of a drill to try and work on that stuff. Like for me personally, I I didn't learn any of that stuff until I actually got into pro class. So... I was in Clubman and I was one of those guys that was just riding the main line everywhere all of the time. And uh, sorry, an expert, I should say. And then I got into pro class in Victoria in the VORCs. So then you get to start. So there's like 10 or 12 people in the pro class at that time. So instead of like starting back in the experts, like a minute or two behind, you get to start with the pros. So straight away, I was like, I take off. I remember it. The first race, I, first cross-country race, I raced with the pros. I'm like, holy shit, like, these dudes are not riding the lines that I've been riding in expert class. They're, like, squaring shit up, like, brake sliding into corners and riding around all the stuff. And, again, I just didn't know. I hadn't been exposed to it. I hadn't really gone and watched the pros until I was lucky enough to get in a race with them and I could follow them. So pretty quickly figured out, okay, I need to 
this is how I need to start to learn how to ride and dissect the track. Um, so yeah, they would be my biggest tips would be, would be watching them, walking the track, and then, yeah, throw some of those drills in there potentially with some witches hats to sort of mix things up a little bit. Um, next one, sodium intake. How to tell if you're getting too much. It's, um, it is kind of easy to tell if you're not getting enough sodium, like big, so the, your big red flags of not getting enough sodium might be headaches, um, brain fog, cramping when you're training, cramping in races. Um, potentially that is a sign of low sodium, but how do you know if you're overdoing it? Really good question. Honestly, the two biggest ones or two, like if you really, really want to know blood pressure and blood work. So obviously if you're having way too much sodium that, and this is why like there is like a lot of, or a lot of people talk about lowering sodium and trying to avoid it uh, is because it can give you high blood pressure. But again, when you look at most of these people who have got high blood pressure from excessive sodium, is it the excessive sodium or is it because they're 30 kilos overweight and they sit on the couch watching Netflix as their chosen hobby? They're not exercising. They're not very active. They're sedentary. They're eating a ton of processed food. So is it the sodium or is it like their lifestyle? So... Again, if you're listening to this podcast, there's a fair chance that you're pretty active. You're riding your dirt bike. You're going in three-hour-long races. Like, that is not normal. Normal people don't do things like that. It's pretty full-on. It's pretty stressful on the body, especially if it's hot, especially if you're sweating. So we need to support that with sodium and even more so if we are eating more of a whole foods diet, lower processed foods. We're going to have lower sodium coming in. So the Race Ready app has a built-in meal tracker. So you can track your food inside the Race Ready app and it actually gives you, doesn't just give you your, your macros and your calories. It also gives you like a micronutrient breakdown. So sodium is one of the ones in there. So again, it's not 100% accurate, but you can see by tracking your foods, if you stick to a pretty whole foods based diet, you're probably going to have a very low sodium intake. So if you're training a lot and you're eating somewhat cleanly, then increasing your sodium intake may be beneficial. So again, to get back to the question, um, how do I know if it's too much? Blood pressure and then like getting your blood work done. If you can like every 12 months, ideally you'd be getting your blood work done and that's like that's going to be your best indication um, of whatever you're doing. Like overall, your training, your nutrition, your, everything is going to be reflected in your blood work. On a day-to-day -day basis, like honestly, would getting your blood pressure tested. <laughs> um, again, if you were having like an excessive amount of sodium in there, that's one way it would reflect uh, daily or yeah, like on a day-to-day -day basis would be excessive blood pressure potentially. So the other side of that coin would be just trimming it back and seeing how you feel. 
if you're if you are potentially concerned that you might be having too much sodium try trimming it back what happens when you really pull pull it back so maybe pull it back to a point where you do notice that you're getting some headaches or you do notice that you're getting some cramps again like what's the difference between those two where you're where you were like including say it's 5,000 milligrams of sodium a day you cut it back to 2,000 milligrams and then you start feeling some of those symptoms of cramping headaches brain fog potentially poor recovery then again you know that 2,000 is not enough I need to bring it back up so maybe you go in the middle but it's a massive like honestly it varies to give you an example like normally I might supplement with one to two thousand milligrams on a like a a day of lower activity or a day in winter where it's colder i'm not sweating much but as an example that uh transmoto race that we raced uh end of the year november it was last year it was actually a pretty hot day i think it was like 35 degrees um so I was on the bike for just under three hours, but it was spread out over eight hours. So even in between those laps, you were just like even sitting in the shade, I was sweating. So I added it all up. I had 7,000 milligrams of sodium that day for that Transmodo. And like, honestly, I reckon I probably could have had a little bit more, maybe, <laughs> but I don't, I don't, I'm not having 7,000 milligrams every single day. So that was obviously an extreme case where it was really, really hot, lots of sweating. So I increased it on that day. And then again, when I'm like today, I'm in my office. I'm not, again, like yesterday, I went on a mountain bike ride. I went on a 90 minute mountain bike ride. It was 35 degrees yesterday. Again, more sodium yesterday. Today, I'm in the office a bit more. So I'm not going to be sweating as much. So today I'm not having as much sodium. So it's it's not like you have this fixed amount every day all the time. It's going to fluctuate a lot depending on how much you're sweating, depending on the time of the year, the temperature. At least that's my experience with it. So um, it's just fine-tuning that for yourself and finding what that is. But if you were really worried about it, I'd be going and getting your blood work done because that's going to be your biggest uh, I guess, benchmark. And if you do get your blood work done regularly, then you've always got something as a reference. So you can get your blood work done and then say, okay, I'm going to increase it, my sodium intake for the next six months. And then go get your blood work done again and you can compare it or vice versa. You can lower it, go get your blood work done again. You've got that reference point there to compare when you do make changes in your either your training, um, maybe it's stress from other things coming in, Obviously, nutrition's a big one. Then you've always got something to compare it to rather than just sort of going by feel. Um, so, last one. Really good question, this one too. I'm going to try and keep this succinct and not go on a rant <laughs> like I tend to do. This is, what are my thoughts on what needs to happen to elevate the off-road racing scene and to get more rider support dollars? So, really good question. 
first off, I would say it's kind of timely, this question, a little, no, well, not timely, but my son, my eldest son is 11 now, as I mentioned. So he's been getting into some more like autobiography books. So he's started listening just in the last few days, started listening to the Toby Price, um, his autobiography. So it's on the audio book, it's read by some other dude which is a bit weird. It's not Toby Price. But anyway, it just, when I was listening to a bit of it with him the other day and Toby was talking about that, when he first got that deal with KDM, I think it was 2010, but he was going from that sort of transition of 2009 into 2010 from the Kawasaki getting his first deal with KDM. So I remember like that was when, so 2009 was when I got a top 10 at Hatter. Um, so that like that period of time was when I was racing flat out. Um, and I remember the I don't know how true this is. This is just the word on the grapevine was at that time when Toby got the his those first couple of deals with KDM that his sign on fee was a hundred K. I don't know whether that's true, I don't know whether that's what he actually got, but that was the word on the street was everyone was saying that he got signed for a hundred K. That was his sign on fee. So let's just say it is true. 100K back then, like honestly, it's probably double that now with the way inflation's gone in the last five years. That's probably like every bit of 200K now or 180K. And that's not what the guys are getting in off-road now. And not and to mention like he's getting that much money, that was also like a proper deal where they're driving the KDM truck to all the races with a mechanic, the full shebang, like how it used to be in off-road back then where all of the manufacturers had a factory truck that went to all the races. Now they don't. There's like even the best dudes in Australia are not getting that and they're having to do their own, like run basically run their own program. Um, so... What needs to happen, honestly, I don't think it is happening. So, because these manufacturers, uh, bike sales have gone like through the roof since COVID. So you would have to think that they're making more money on the front end from sales, but they keep cutting their budgets on the racing side of it. Now, why is that? Well, these companies are at the end of the day they're a company so they're running a business and they're a lot smarter than you and i are so they've got people that are that know their shit um so they probably knew that this like that through covid the economy was going to boom and then now they're like they're starting to see a downturn in the economy so they're smart enough to be ahead of that. So they've been trimming their budgets back for the last three, four, however many years because they probably knew there was going to be a downturn. So they're saving money. Um, that's just my thought on it. These big businesses are big businesses big businesses because they know their shit and they know how to manage their their cash flow and their their balance sheets. So that's probably why they've been like trimming their budgets back. So if you think it's going to change, I would, I think you're going to be waiting a real long time. It's not going to change. So what needs to happen, I think, is people need to 
find better ways to provide value to sponsors to potentially bring in some outside sponsors and run your own program because that's basically what's happening at the highest level now like the best dudes in australia are getting a budget to run their own program they're not it's not really a factory deal anymore they're run they are getting some a budget obviously but they're still having to run their own program so if you're waiting to get some deal that's going to change your life in australia it's not happening so you've got to figure out a way how to get your own deal or run your own program so i think again that's it's not always about results like you don't especially in this day and age like you you don't have to win every race to provide value to sponsors so obviously social media youtube there's like a ton of ways that you could bring value to sponsors and get that like emotional buy-in from outside people that will want to help you so that would be my like how can you do that think about how can you provide more value how can you like get more people to buy into your story to buy into your mission because that's basically what it is like you've you've got a mission that you want to achieve whether it's to win or just to go go racing for the year and um be like a, a top five guy whatever it is everyone's got their own version of what that looks like if you want help to do that you've got to get people to buy into what you want to achieve so you've got to be able to show them that get them to buy into that and and give them value so there's lots of ways you can do that like i just said like social media and having a youtube channel or something these days like there's a ton of ways you could go about it um doing on bike coaching like i don't know there's ways that you could provide value to people that would get them to want to like for for businesses like 10k if you had like multiple businesses that would put up 10k like 10k is not a lot of money for a big business that's earning that's got good turnover like it's not out of the question to get a few of those sponsors to give you or even 5k you get a few of those sponsors then that makes your year a lot easier but you've got to be able to give them something for that if you just take their their cash and then you put like one post on instagram every three months like that's probably not going to cut it um like an example i think in the usa that's in the supercross like I, I don't know the guy this is just following his uh instagram is kevin moran's like he's a privateer dude like he didn't even qualify for the main event on the weekend he has been injured so it was his first race back but he didn't even get he got into the lcq and then i think he came fifth no i think he ended up coming eighth or something so like not a great weekend results wise but if you look at all the stuff he does he's like pumping his social media youtube and he's like basically running his own team he's got his own little factory like his truck set up um even when he was injured he was at the races doing autograph signings handing out free shit for the sponsors like even though he couldn't race so he's still giving them value um, he's getting people to buy into his vision, into his mission. And like he's a 
like obviously he has had some glimpses of brilliance and some some good results in there but uh, like a lot of the time especially this year he's not even making the main events so like you don't necessarily have to be the fastest dude out there to get people to give you money to help you out you've just got to be able to like sell yourself and give value to people so that would be my i'd be like changing my thought process a little bit around that and like asking yourself how you can actually do that like the deegans are another example too like obviously they've got the results to back it up but even before like now danger boys obviously like winning and getting results even before that like when he first started racing as a junior like they were probably like the pioneers of the obviously having a youtube channel and doing all of that providing the sponsors value like so there's yeah like i say there's there's other ways that you can do it you don't necessarily have to expect that that the that a dealer or a manufacturer is going to throw up more money or free bikes for you or something you've just got to find other ways to to go about it and like honestly i can tell you like that's how most of these guys especially in australia now that's what they're having to do they're having to find sponsors from outside yeah they might get a bit of a budget up front or they might get a bit of a um or a, a couple of free bikes or whatever but that's still not enough to go racing all year so even at the highest level in australia they that's what they're having to do they're having to find other ways to bring more money into their program so they can race and not have to work five, like 12 hour days five days a week to go racing so they can actually get some more bike time during the week so like again i haven't been overseas i haven't been to the gnc gnccs in america but just looking at it from the outside like there's lots of those little, smaller, I guess you, they would be called satellite type teams over there where guys are running their own programs. And again, that's how they do it. Like they get sponsors in, outside sponsors. It's not all manufacturer money. So yeah, there's, there's other ways to do it. And I think that's the way we have to go with it because I don't think it's going to change anytime soon. At least that's the that's the vibe like if they're making more money on bike sales and they're trimming their budgets back more and more every single year like what does that tell us like i don't think that extra money is coming for the riders obviously it'd be awesome if that did change but i don't think it's going to happen so you got to figure out other ways um to be able to do that for yourself so that's it for today I better call it quits. Thank you for everyone that sent in questions. Some good ones this month. Um, again, uh, I appreciate you all for listening. If you got some value out of this podcast and you would like to share it, that would mean the world to me. Otherwise, we will see you on the next episode and we'll have another one of these listener Q&As up in the month of March in a few weeks. Bye-bye.